Amen. Well, good morning, church. Good to be with you. Uh, it was good to not be with you last weekend. It was in, uh, up in Denali with Jill for celebrating our one-year anniversary. Uh, God was faithful. We almost didn't make it. The day before our anniversary, Monday, we went into the park, got caught, and almost died in a hailstorm. Uh, we will save that for a sermon illustration that I'm sure will come down the road at some point. But they do say the first year is the hardest. So uh, we're glad that we made it through that. Uh, it's good to be with you. Good to have a group from Indiana here serving at Solid Rock. Shout out to our Hoosiers. Was born a Hoosier, then immediately fled the flat, flat state of Indiana. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We love you guys in, in, your, in your state. Uh, that was awkward. Um, so many of you know we've been walking through the book of Matthew together. Uh, last week, Pastor Ross uh, led us into the first half of Matthew 18, talking about how we're to see people in the kingdom. We're going to be wrapping up the second half of 18 today, talking about kingdom reconciliation. Um, speaking of Solid Rock, uh, many of you know uh, a fellow brother of ours, Ted McKinney, uh, been, had been the director at Solid Rock forever. I think back when it was still Solid Pebble. Uh, things have just really grown since then. Um, but uh, a brother of mine, I knew him. I was attending Cook Inlet Academy when he was t- coaching cross-country there. Also, as the picture indicates, he coached at Soldatna High School as well. A fellow pastor over at Peninsula Bible Fellowship uh, for the last few years. Loved by many here on the peninsula. On March 13th, um, a CAT scan revealed a mass in Ted's brain, which turned out to be stage 4 inoperable brain cancer And this came suddenly. What was initially they just thought was some potential food allergies, um, where things started to seemingly overnight deteriorate. Ted went to California to get some treatments at Stanford University, um, but returned at uh, home just here at the end of May. Sadly, the the, the um, treatments were found to be unsuccessful, and now family and friends are simply enjoying time with this beautiful man until he's absent from the body and present with the Lord. We're going to be praying for our brother and his family in this, in this hard time, and as Dave just shared his own current journey with cancer, cancer is horrible. And if it's not dealt with completely, it, it will kill The Canadian Cancer Society says what's going on in cancer is there are these gene mutations or changes in the cells of our body that are interfering with their normal instructions, causing them to grow and divide out of control and not die when they should. Now I'll preach, right? The purpose of our lives is to worship God in a way that is worthy of his infinite glory and beauty and majesty. And he's put these instructions in ourselves for how to do that as we love each other, as we worship him together in harmony. And we can think of sin like a cancer that comes in and hijacks our bodies, our cells. And what we see is is it distorts us from what God has called us to do in our lives, it, it divides and it causes things to go out of control. It interferes with our normal instructions to obey God's word, his better and infinitely healthier path for our lives. And, and sin says, nope, I'm going to do it my way. And just like the cancer cell, it doesn't know when to stop. And it takes and it takes and it consumes and it kills but it doesn't just stop with us. We are called the body of Christ. And so what we see is like a, like a virus, sin spreads from one person and affects the entire camp. 
Now we have to see, we have to see sin the way God sees sin. Sin is not just a naughty little out-of-bounds oopsie, a mistake that we've made. We got to see it the way God sees it. Sin has one agenda, and that is to kill. And sin leads to death. And we, we say that the word death means separation. We talk about division. It separates us from God and man. What happened in the garden? Adam and Eve sin. They rebel against God and they immediately hide. It causes us to hide from God, run from God, rebel against God, spit on his name and cheat on our God with other gods we would call idols. It also divides and separates us from each other. Sin causes us to kill each other, gossip about each other, sleep around on each other, hate and fear each other, think that we're better than each other. And what a timely word for the past couple of weeks as we've been experiencing division and chaos in our society in the midst of this pandemic and in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. And just like with an oncologist, cancer doctor, what's, what's, what's her job? Her, her goal, her end, is to restore this sweet young one to a healthy state where her cells are following their instructions once again. But to do that, the cancer must be dealt with completely. God's goal for mankind is reconciliation. A healthy state of a restored relationship both between God and us and between fellow man. And that means that, likewise, sin has to be dealt with completely. And in our passage today, Matthew 18, we're going to see some bedrock principles for the right way to deal with sin to get us to this healthy state. We're going to see three crucial, necessary ingredients for that. We're going to see that there must, must be loving confrontation, there must be humble repentance, and there must be gracious forgiveness. Let's open the word together. The first one is loving confrontation. Matthew 18 will be in the ESV if you're following along in your Bible. Um, Jesus opens this by saying, if your brother sins against you. So in this scenario, when a brother sins or sins against you, we're going to see four steps and each next step is taken if the prior step fails. Step number one is to go to them alone. Verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So let's say that I say something dumb to Jill. Obviously, this is just a complete hypothetical. Um, I mean, I really put my foot in my mouth, right? Now, instead of coming to me, let's say that she submits what I said to Lisa in the office and says, hey, would you run that in church news this Thursday? And so we open up the news and it says, Justin told Jill that her cooking tastes like, anyway, this is a hypothetical, that doesn't matter. Um, obviously, we might need a little bit of counseling, right? A little, little how-to guide. I would hope that she would come to me first. That hurt me what you said. See, going to the person alone, it avoids gossip, it avoids rumors, it avoids unneeded shame or embarrassment. It keeps misunderstandings from multiplying. It keeps the conflict to a minimum. Listen, we don't talk about them we first talk to them go to the individual now this requires a couple of things we're going to go oh there it is there's your there's your weekly announcements if we're going to go to the person it requires action and courage action and courage listen we must be bold and loving enough to speak the truth directly to them and if i'm honest with you oftentimes i'm afraid I'm afraid of how they're going to react or, or get in my head and go, well, maybe I'm not right on this thing, so I'm just not going to go to them at all. And what I find myself doing, whether it's because of laziness or fear, I'll neglect them or I'll just avoid the situation altogether. 
This also requires prayer and humility. Because the reality is, we may be wrong. We may not be seeing correctly. Or they may show us the part we've been playing in this thing too. So we come gently and humbly, not guns blazing, right? We don't come ready just to take them out, to put them in their place and lecture them. We come, ask, we, we come simply saying, hey, I'm seeing this. I might be wrong here, but I want to address it. I want to address it. Now, the question here is, when do, we, when do we speak and when do we remain silent? Do we confront somebody every single time there's a sin? A couple of principles to think about. First of all, when it's a sin against you. Here he says, if your brother sins against you. Now, there are original manuscripts that would argue that against you isn't necessarily there. It may or may not be. We know from Galatians 6 and other passages, we don't just approach somebody when they're in sin directly against you. There can be other occasions, but this is certainly one principle. If it was done to you, you go to them. Another principle would be when it's an habitual pattern. How brutal would it be if every time you sinned, there was your spouse or a friend pointing everything you said, every wrong thing you did, every wrong thing you thought, that would be unbearable. What we're looking for is habits, patterns, ongoing themes in a friend or spouse's or loved one's life to point out. And then the last principle here would be when it's harming others, when it's harming others. Um, Simon and Garfunkel have the song that says, I am a rock, I am an island. Lies, Simon and Garfunkel, right? We are not an island. That We are connected as a body, and our sin affects the rest of that body. And so when you see the potential or you see it harming others, we need to step in and say something. Um, and look at what he says, though. If the person listens, if you confront them, which the word confront with face, you go to their face, right? You go directly to them. It says, if he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Do you hear that language? This is relationship. Remember, the, it, he says it's like you get a sibling back. And, and our goal is always, always, always restoration of relationship. This isn't about punishment. This isn't about condemnation. This isn't just about you being right. This is speaking the truth in love so there might be a restored relationship. It's a sensitive illustration but right now, but our attitude should not be that of a policeman out to arrest a criminal. We're not just simply looking to bust somebody to catch them in their wrongdoing and put them in their place. Our goal, Warren Wearsby says, should be that of a physician seeking to heal a wound in the body of Christ, a wound that will spread sickness and death if left alone. We come lovingly, we come to restore. Now, the second step is to go to them with one or two others. If he does listen, great, we're done. You don't have to move on. But if they don't listen to you, then he says, take one or two others along with you. Now, why would you do that? Well, he answers the question that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is actually hyperlinking back to the Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 19, he talked about this to, to validate it with the, with the presence of witnesses. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is not necessarily that they witnessed the incident, but they are there to witness the confrontation itself. Because see, maybe you're right, and the other person is refusing to see it. And now you have witnesses to see that you're not making that up. But maybe you're wrong, and they can point out things that you didn't see, some of your own bias or blind spots or more information to be brought to the table. Now, who do you bring in? You're obviously not just grabbing two random people. The next two people that come out of Fred Meyer, come over here. 
We're looking for those who ideally know both of you, that there's trust, there's relationship there, and they're not necessarily biased either way. You want to choose people who are prepared to tell either of you some uncomfortable truths if needed. So again, if that works there and they listen and we reconcile, then we're good. If not, we go to step three, go to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, then tell it to the church. Now, the church isn't a thing yet when Jesus is talking here. That doesn't start until the book of Acts when Jesus ascends. This word church can, in the general uh, term, mean the assembly. Now, in the context that Jesus is talking about to the Jewish people, they would meet in these local synagogues. But the the heart of what he's saying here is to take it to the small-scale, local assembly of God's people. Or there there are some who would interpret this the representation of that local assembly, the leaders. In our context, that could be the elders of the church. Now, again, this only happens if the first two steps didn't work. We don't get up here every Sunday and whip out a list of everybody's sins. Good morning, church. We saw that Isaac stole a cookie when April wasn't looking. All right, we heard a really bad word come out of Blair's mouth earlier. Again, these are hypothetical situations. Hypothetical situations. Rana tipped me off otherwise. Hypothetical situations. Um, it, this is a last-ditch effort, right, to, to save a hard-hearted brother or sister that's hurtling toward a cliff of destruction who has refused to listen to loving siblings over the course of time. Now, fortunately, we as a church haven't done, haven't had to do too much of this. Some of that is probably to our shame for not taking sin seriously enough. But, and I have been a part of this a few times. And you know what often happens, just being honest, most of the time, by step one or two, the person just says, I'm out of here. And they'll go find somewhere else. Most of the time. But what happens if, if that still does, the tr- even if they don't listen to the church, step four, it says, see them as an unrepentant sinner. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, what are they talking about here? Well, they would have seen, the Jewish person would have seen the Gentile or the tax collector as someone outside their community of faith. So you might reference an unbeliever, and and some would say, well, you're supposed to treat an unbeliever compassionately and love them, which is totally true. But that's not what they would have been thinking when Jesus told them this, the way they would have seen a a Gentile or a tax collector. And remember, the author of this book, Matthew, was a tax collector, so this hit close to home for him. But they represented those who were openly rebellious toward God and were not part of the Jewish community's worship of God and life together. Which brings us to our second ingredient necessary for true reconciliation, and that is humble repentance. Humble repentance. You remember Jesus' words, if you've been with, going through this book study with us, back in Matthew 4, when he launches his ministry, announcing the kingdom, the first words out of his mouth, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, he says. He says, if you want to live in God's kingdom, and we've defined God's kingdom as the sphere of his rule and reign, the the space where it's God's way. He says, if you want to be a part of that, it starts with repentance. Now, what does that mean? The word repent means to turn or to change one's mind. If you are unwilling to turn from your own way and go God's way, He says you cannot be a part of God's kingdom because by definition, God's kingdom is his way. 
So if you're turning your back on Jesus and saying, my way, not your way, you cannot be a part of his kingdom. If you have a person in the church who insists on their way, even confronted by one person, and then confronted by two or three people, and then the entire church, Jesus says, let them be who they really are, rebels against their own God. You aren't saying they can't be a part of God's way. They are insisting on it themselves. So what does this look like? Well, what do you do with people who are following Jesus? What does that look like together? We worship God together. We pray together. We get into his word together. We confess sin to each other. We forgive each other, as we'll see. You don't do that with somebody who's not following Jesus, right? They're not heading the same way as you. With tears of compassion in our eyes, we look at this rebel and say, man, until you are willing to turn from your sin and come back to God, we cannot do Jesus' life together. Now, we don't badmouth them. We don't hate them. We're not bitter toward them. We don't mistreat them. We don't see them coming at us in the Fred Meyer aisle and dive into the potato chips out of the way, right? Like we treat them like a human. We call them to repentance. We preach the gospel. Come to Jesus for reconciliation. And this is actually the most loving thing for us to do. Love always does what's best for the individual. As elders, we are mandated by God to protect the flock. That includes wolves among sheep. That includes cancer in the body. Love always does what's best. It does what's best for the individual in hopes that that person will repent and be healed in their relationship with God and others and for the body. It's not unloving to say to cancer, if you refuse treatment, right, you're going to be cut out of the entire, or else the entire body's going down with you, right? But, but, but when they do repent in any one of those stages, what is our response to be? Well, that's where Jesus goes next. The last ingredient gracious forgiveness. And I love, love, love that this story comes next. I don't think this is an accident. Verse 21, then Peter, here comes brash, bold Peter, comes up and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Seven times, Lord? Now, the rabbis at this time had a saying. Uh, basically, they said, forgive three times, but on the fourth, don't forgive him. The rabbis were baseball players. Three strikes and you're out. And so here comes Peter, and he's really kind of thinking in his mind, like, Jesus, do you see how forgiving I am? I will see the rabbi's forgiveness and double it plus one. Do I get my forgiveness badge now, right? Did you notice, Jesus, that's the perfect number? It's a Bible number. It means, it means completion, perfection. To which Jesus, not impressed, verse 22, he says, I say, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now this could mean, in the Greek, it could mean 77 or 70 times 7, which would be 490. But either way, the point is, what Jesus is saying here is you always, always forgive. Peter's how many times question is actually the wrong question altogether. If we're counting how many times we've forgiven someone, we're not actually forgiving them. We're just postponing revenge. I know. Now, Peter is thinking of himself here as the forgiver, right? But man, on the hardest night in Jesus' life, when Jesus is being 
tried and being beaten and eventually the next day will become murdered. Where is Peter? Peter finds himself on the other side where he needs to be forgiven and it needs to be more than three times. Remember that you will find yourself on both sides of forgiveness many times throughout your life. Therefore, Jesus says, therefore, in light of Peter's question, Jesus is going to offer another parable. Remember what we said about parables? He who, he who has ears, let him hear. I see you guys forgot the motions. That's cool. It's forgiveness. Um, Verse 23 says, the kingdom of heaven. He's going to tell another parable. We always want to have ears to hear. What is Jesus saying to him and what's he saying to us today? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us today. In today's terms, this would be the equivalent of about $6 billion. That's a large debt. It would have taken, at that man's, about the average wage for a man like that, it would take him 164,000 years to repay. This was more money than was in circulation in that entire region in the time. In fact, this term talents could be bags of gold. That was the largest currency they had. And this term 10,000 was the largest number that they could use at the time. It's like when you were a kid and got in arguments with your friend and you go, "Uh uh-uh, infinity squared, right? It was you saying the biggest number you could think of. What's the point here? Jesus exaggerates the amount to show that this debt is unpayable. Or as Michael Scott would say, it's incalculable. Right? You cannot count it. Verse 25. Now Jesus' audience, they hear this. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. This would cost him because he couldn't pay it, not just his own life, but that of his family's. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, Jesus' audience got it, and they would have been chuckling at this because they know it's an unpayable debt. They know that it's, what he needs is not patience, but as Charles Spurgeon says it, he says, the servant debtor through thought he only needed patience, but indeed he needed forgiveness. All the patience in the world from the king wouldn't have been enough time for this man to pay it back. He had to be forgiven. And that's exactly what he receives. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. The word forgive here, it means to let go, to give up a debt. You know, you know how Elsa says it, right? What it means here is that this man, this servant couldn't afford to pay and had to be forgiven. The debt had to be released if he was going to get away out of paying it. But what we see now is a tragic, hypocritical turn in our story for this servant. Verse 28, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, these, these denarii, these a hundred denarii, this would have been about four months' wages. Compare that to what he owed to the king. It was about one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he had just been forgiven of. And so his fellow servant fell on the ground and pleaded with him. And does this sound familiar? Have patience with me and I will pay you. Now this could have actually happened. 
The same words he said to the king, though. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, they had ta- what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So notice here, he doesn't even see the irony himself. He doesn't see the hypocrisy. The Jewish audience would have been so appalled that it was the servants that had to point it out to the king. He didn't even see it. This Jewish audience would have been so appalled, so shocked. How could this man be so blind? How could he be so hypocritical? We wait for the application. The master's reaction, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not... Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, probably better translated torturers, until he should pay all of his debt. The king says, you will be tortured until you pay the debt. And we know it's an unpayable debt. So that would last forever. And Jesus ends with this haunting application is in verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Notice it says from your heart. Not just, I mean, you make your kids say, for, say I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? We're talking from the heart, he says. Now, is Jesus saying here that we have to earn our salvation? Is he saying that until you forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. You first forgive, and then I'll forgive you. I didn't think that's how the gospel worked. Well, let's look at our own situation, because we're much like the servant in the story. Three truths that we need to remember and believe. Number one, we owe an incalculable, that's how you say it, Michael Scott, unpayable debt to God because of our sin. It's not patience that our God needs with us. It would be forgiveness. We can never pay our debt of sin. So our only hope is that God would forgive it, but here's the problem. Timothy Keller, he says that grace and forgiveness are free to the recipient, but they are costly to the giver. They are free to the recipient, but they are costly to the giver. So, uh, illustration, if I have, let's say Luther owes me a dollar, all right? So he owes me a dollar. Now, one of us is going to have to pay. I can either make Luther pay Now he's a dollar poorer, or I can forgive Luther, and I'm now a dollar poorer. One of us will pay. God couldn't just say, I forgive you. The debt had to be paid. And so he paid it himself on a hill far away. God graciously provided an incalculable payment through Jesus on the cross. See, it would have cost one of us. And what Jesus did is he said, I'm going to give you freely what will cost me. And he bore my sin and my shame and my debt, taking my death on the cross. And not just mine, but yours and yours and yours and everyone. Therefore, therefore, number three, those who have freely received his forgiveness that he absorbed the debt that we had amassed for every sin that we'd ever committed for all time also those people who receive that forgiveness also freely give his forgiveness to others 
when I see my bottomless debt and I look up and I see my God's bottomless forgiveness through Jesus' bottomless payment, how can I not forgive my brother who owes me one six hundred thousandth of what I owe my God? David Guzik says you can't even compare the two. He says no man can possibly offend me to the extent that my sins have offended God. No, I don't earn my forgiveness. I'm transformed by his forgiveness. N.T. Wright, he, he likened it to breathing. So you think of it this way. When we breathe in, he says, it's like we're breathing in God's forgiveness. And when we breathe out, we are forgiving others. We're letting it go. And he says, when you lock up your air channels and your lungs, if you are unwilling to forgive someone else, If you're not breathing out, you're locking up your lungs from being able to breathe in as well. Do you see how this works? It goes hand in hand. If my channels are open, I'm receiving God's love and forgiveness and giving his love and forgiveness. But if I am not giving it, that indicates I'm not one who's receiving it. So here's what I'd encourage you as an exercise. If you're struggling to forgive someone, simply stop and breathe in his love and forgiveness, and that's the forgiveness that you're then freely offering to those who have offended you. Remember the goal. Remember the goal is restoration. Recently, there was a young man by the name of Asher, a little seven-year-old boy who had battled many, many, many days with cancer. And he came home to his hometown, and he finds students at a school celebrating, ready for this welcome home Asher celebration. And they got kids who had walked the road with him, shaved their heads in solidarity with him, screaming excitement at the top of their lungs as Asher comes strolling in in with his parents. The goal was to see Asher healthy and restored in his own body and in relationship with those who loved him. We cannot forget the goal here as somebody is lovingly confronted and then humbly repents and then is graciously forgiven. The goal is health. The goal is restoration with that person's own heart, with God, and into community with other fellow sinners. Satan and sin want nothing more than to divide us. So we have to get rid of the cancer. We talk about reconciliation. All three parts are necessary ingredients. So where are you at today? Maybe, maybe for you, it's needing to lovingly confront. Maybe you're like me, a people pleaser. And the last thing I want to do is have a hard conversation with someone. I just want them to like me. So whether it's out of laziness or fear, I'm slow to speak a true word. Or sometimes, man, we've been too harsh. Maybe you love confrontation and you need to adjust the way and the frequency with which you approach people. But we all need, I don't care if you're single, you're married, we need people in our lives and we need to be the kind of friends in others' lives who will gently, humbly, lovingly point out blind spots, point out areas that need to be grown in. Maybe you need to repent today. Maybe there's a conviction in your heart that you know between your God or maybe others have been trying to point it out, but you keep closing your ears and hardening your heart to that. Maybe today is the day that you take that step of repentance. I've been going my own way. I need to stop and go God's way. And maybe today is the day you need to graciously forgive. You need to let it go. Now, forgiveness from your own heart 
That's, that's on you. That's you and God. To release bitterness, to release anger, to release resentment, that, that's, that's you and God. It has nothing to do with, with what their response is. That's a one-way street. But in order for there to be reconciliation, a, a restored relationship, that requires both parties being willing to turn toward each other by the grace of God, through the gift of Jesus, move in the same direction. Also want to say there's a difference. There's a difference between forgiveness and wise boundaries. I mean, hear me on this. There's a difference between forgiveness and wise boundaries. You can release bitterness. You can genuinely desire the well-being of another, but still draw a boundary. If we have coming into our church, a registered sex offender, we can forgive them and love them, but they're not serving in our children's ministry. Removing healthy boundaries isn't good for anybody involved. See, forgiveness isn't saying it it never happened. Forgiveness is saying it did happen, but we're going to deal with it, and we're going to love each other, and we're going to accept each other through it. The good news, the good news, the foundation of all of this, the reason we can forgive each other is because our God has forgiven us. And just like the story of the prodigal son, because the debt's been paid, because we've been released from what we owed against God, because of what Jesus paid for us, no matter how many times on this side of the judgment seat we turn and come back to God, he not just accepts us, he runs to us with tears in his eyes. And not three times, not seven times, not 490 times, limitlessly. And because of that, because of his forgiveness that we breathe in, we can breathe out loving confrontation, humble repentance, and gracious forgiveness. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. We we owed a debt we could not pay. But you paid the debt for us. The only grounds that we stand on today Our only hope is Jesus' blood and righteousness. The reason that you can accept us is because of the grounds, the blood-bought grounds of Jesus. And because we have now received that forgiveness, because we've been given a new heart, the heart of Jesus, the one that forgave and sacrificially so, we can now breathe out and we can be the kind of people who forgive over and over and over again. So I pray for our body. This is a time that the devil, that our own flesh wants so badly to divide. We've seen the way our nation, this world, has been racked with division as people have fallen in different places, taken different sides and camps in a very tumultuous season. Lord, we want to be different. We want to stand out to the world. We want them to know that you love them. And the way that we do that is by loving each other with your love. Pray for a brother or sister today. Maybe there's somebody in here who's not a part of the family of God, and they need to turn from their way and come to God's way and find health in their own hearts between them and God and then be invited into this body. And Lord, that we would love each other enough, take sin seriously enough, that you give boldness, courage, action, prayer, and humility to the one today that needs to lovingly confront a brother or sister that you would give them the humility for those in this room today that need to repent, and that you would give us the grace to forgive, to breathe out what we breathe in. It is only possible 
in the man Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So we pray these things in his gracious, forgiving name. Amen.